This evening, we're going to be working on the history of the Cathars, uh, Innocent III, Pope Innocent III, and the Albigensian Crusade. These references, as we look through them, really have for us a, uh, a central focus of how the medieval church deals with heresy. And so as we look into the nature of the response and how the crusading spirit got all wrapped up into that, um, tonight we're going to be finding ourselves in uh, in second and thirteenth, or excuse me, in twelfth and thirteenth century France, and uh, dealing with some of the issues that were going on there. Really, at the height of uh, at the height of crusading uh, fervor, if you will. And so, uh, as we look into that, I wanted to kind of remind you: deep dives from week to week are really not going to have anything to do with one another. Um, I, if you want to go through the chronological history of the church as I present it, um, I have done uh, over 60 episodes of that, all chronological through all 20 centuries of the church, and uh, and they're on this podcast. If you uh, and you can just search for it anywhere, church history and theology, and um, and then after that we come into the deep dives. The deep dives, <clears throat> just to kind of um, explain again, the deep dives are. Um, hopefully relegated to about an hour long of a uh, centered on a single topic or event or person or uh, theological controversy or, or something that I would consider helpful for us to study, especially in the concept of our Christian walk. Most of the time when we talk about church history, we don't really connect it with this idea that the Christian walk is lived in a certain way or that church history has anything to do with that Christian walk or our theology. But again, I will remind you, the this subject, or the, not the subject, but the uh, title of this uh, podcast is Church History and Theology. And so uh, how the church deals with things, how we deal with things, how we ought to deal with things, that kind of approach to all of this is going to come to the forefront. And so uh, without any further ado, we're going to go right into it. Um, I will say for the deep dives, if you have not gone through church history ever before, or you haven't even gone through it with me before, um, there's going to be parts of deep dives that you're probably going to be just very lost on um, because it kind of assumes a familiarity with church history. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, so let's go into it. When I say the word Cathar, most Christians, most pastors will probably not even remember the terminology if they heard it in a single lecture in church history at some point in seminary, or uh, maybe you heard it in passing in a history textbook at some point. But I assure you the issues that came up in the early 13th century in France are really important in our understanding of uh, a bad example of how to handle false teaching in the church. The medieval church, for all of its wonder and all of its fascination, uh, especially to yours truly, um, definitely had a real hard time uh, dealing with the reality that they were all of a sudden uh, a church that was holding the sword of the state and they were holding the responsibility of, of holding up good theology and then trying to figure out where does the line get crossed where we are no longer actually doing something purely as Christians. Now it's just something almost purely as a cultural force. Um, most of the time when we talk about the Crusades, I spent a couple of weeks on the Crusades and on Pope Innocent III uh, back when we were walking through church history. And most of the time when we come to the Crusades, we like to kind of package them up. Here's the First Crusade, Second Crusade, Third, Fourth, Fifth, all the way up to, I've, I've seen people label them all the way up to nine Crusades. Um, that That's really just more to help people try to understand stuff. But the reality is there is more of just a crusading spirit going on throughout the southern parts of Europe for 150, 200 years, uh, from about 1100 to about 1300. And so when we come down to today's section, when we come down to today's history, we're talking in the early 1200s. We are at the height of crusading spirit. And this is where the Catholic Church uh, learns uh, what we're not going to do in the future. 
you know, crusades when they started out were, and we discussed this at length, crusades when they started out had to do with a concept of liberating the Holy Land uh, from Muslim hands. Uh, part of it was let's help out the Eastern Church, the Greek Christians, um, you know, till like the fourth century when we accidentally, you know, sacked Constantinople, which is like, you know, the head of the Eastern Greek Church. Um, but when, uh, that's not overly accurate, but you, you know what I'm saying. Um, all of the Crusades up to the year 1200 had always been addressing uh, enemies of Christendom, those on the outskirts of our borders, sometimes on the outskirts of somebody else's borders, and we're going to assist them with a purpose of accomplishing this or that for the sake of Christ in a world that should belong to Christ but doesn't due to uh, the wars that had happened beforehand. The issue that we're going to talk about today is the first and only time where a full-on crusade is put towards something inside Christendom. And not inside Christendom just a little bit, but really at the heart of it all, where Italy and France and Spain all kind of come together, that whole area there on the Mediterranean. Um, and so we're going to talk about that at length. What what brings that about? What what made that kind of thing happen? And in order to understand that, we're going to have to cover a couple of things. One is, uh, obviously, we've got the Roman Catholic Church is uh, one of the belligerents in all of this. But then you also have the um, the causal form, uh, the, the believers in what is called Catharism, uh, the Cathars for short. And uh, they're also sometimes referred to as Albigensians. Uh, you may have heard them by that name. Um, but regardless of how you've heard from them or how you've heard, uh, I want to kind of just start over at ground zero, assuming no one in the audience has ever heard these people before. And so we're going to start there uh, on, on a very uh, low simmer. And then we're just kind of try to build it up so that we can understand uh, what in the world was going on here, because it's a very unique moment in church history, and uh, it really is afforded to us to pay attention to it pretty well. Uh, so let's go into this, the Cathars. Um, first of all, their second name, Albigensian, just comes from the fact that they were uh, very prevalent in the Albi region of southern France. That That's just, you know, a little, a little, um, <laughs> a little nugget of uh, factoid there. Um, they are, if you remember Gnosticism, uh, they are a revival of um, pretty severe Gnostic teachings. Uh, they were a Gnostic revival movement that pushed itself off as a version of Christianity. Obviously, whenever that happens, you have to call into question uh, the prevailing Catholic orthodoxy. You have to call into question their hierarchy. You have to call into question how they make decisions. Um, you have to call into question all of these things. When I say they are a Gnostic revival movement, I think some people get a, um, you know, a veil over the, you know, eyes are just kind of glazed over and, and lose sight of this. Let, let's delve into that just a little bit. A lot of people think they understand Gnosticism. Most people have no idea what it is. In short, there is in the uh, Cathar movement, uh, one of the most defining characteristics of their beliefs that we can reconstruct because they were completely wiped out. The, the One of the most defining aspects of their beliefs is very similar to Gnosticism, and it is this concept of dualism. Dualism uh, and dualistic cosmology, right? This idea that there is a material world, a physical world, and a spiritual world. Those two things never, ever overlap. And when they overlap, it's bad news, for instance. So this comes from uh, Greek philosophy, this, this idea of matter as, um, as, as that which breaks down. We, we see it in tropic. Uh, it, it is, if you leave it alone long enough, it disintegrates. Whereas in the spiritual, we see it as the, the emanation of the divine. It is the good. It is the ideal. It is the perfect, right? Uh, Platonic solids, all that kind of stuff is all built into this kind of a cloud of definition called dualism. 
this idea that uh, even the physical world, and it gets it gets to the point in Catharism and uh, for the Cathars to to actually look at the reality that they believe the good God, the good force, the good side over here, the spiritual force is all that the Christians are to be focused towards. They are they are to be aligned towards that, which means their attitude towards the material world and the in Cathar religion equal satanic being of god over here that created the physical world right and so there's this this strong dualistic concept you have uh the god father of jesus christ is the one who created the spiritual realm uh angels and all of this over here is the satanic figure equal in power it seems as best as we can reconstruct equal in power equal in eternity that created the material world and that divide defines everything about Cathars and how they believe these two sides interact. Um, in their theology, the God, the good God of the New Testament is the one who made the spiritual world. And the Old Testament is almost entirely cast aside as satanic. Um, they believe that that was the uh, that the Old Testament God was the one who was the creator of the physical world. If you remember uh, Marcionism, uh, he had a similar concept because he was a version of Gnostic himself. And this kind of idea of dualistic idea um, leading to the material world is bad. Spiritual world is good. Uh, obviously, in Christian theology, you have that's going to affect nearly every area of Christian theology. Right. The entire concept and hope of the Christian is that the creation itself is groaning unto the day of the revealing of the sons of God and all of us rise from the dead. You, you will recall, if you, uh, if you remember, when Paul is on Mars Hill on the Areopagus, when he is speaking to the Greek philosophers there, and they're listening, they're listening, they're listening, and then as soon as he mentions resurrection from the dead, so many of them walk away and won't hear anything else. Because in, in broad Greek dualistic thinking, returning to the physical world is the opposite of hope. That's a bad thing. We want to be off into the spiritual ether, if you will. Well, the Cathars, as a Gnostic revival movement, really brought a lot of this dualistic concept into their everyday life. It led to a very harsh form of asceticism that's, that the Catholic Church, while it had its ascetics, uh, ascetics, if you uh, recall, um, monasticism used uh, asceticism, its severity to the body, its denial of food or of clothing or of proper place to live. It is uh, kind of removing oneself from the needs of the physical world. Obviously, that would appeal to uh, Cathars. Um and so you get this you get this kind of idea of them uh not almost them re reneging the idea that they actually belong in physical bodies and so they will actually have this concept of salvation that is not about sin primarily nor is it about um, you know, imputed righteousness of Christ or or even him on the cross. Because obviously, if if you have all things that are physical are bad, then Jesus himself can't have come physically. You see how it affects everything? Um, he wasn't actually born as one of us because that would mean that God became a part of a sinful creation. And so Jesus is only an appearance. He didn't actually come in the flesh. Um, you can see... The book of First John is already dealing with an early concept of this uh, when you read that. Um, but Cathars would hold to this concept. Uh, Jesus did not even die on the cross. He just merely appeared to do those things because God cannot step into this sinful world. And it's not a sinful world because the world has fallen. It's a sinful world in their concept because it's always been so. It's always been wrong and bad. Remember, in their thinking, the God of the Old Testament is Satan. He's the bad one. 
Uh, it's why he's so focused on physical kingdoms. It's why he's so focused on uh, wars and things like this. And then the God of the New Testament, the Father of Jesus Christ, in their theology, is a completely different and equal God on the other side that created and manages the spiritual side of things that we are aiming to get back to. Well, you say, okay, well, fine. So then their view of salvation really is just death, right? Because if once we shuffle off this mortal coil, then we go to the spiritual ether, correct? No, <laughs> not correct. Because on top of this, they had this idea that while the soul itself is immortal, if it does not free itself from this physical plane, when it dies, that soul is still bound to the physical world and it finds another body to be a part of. It is reincarnation here in the West. This idea that humans are basically angelic spirits that are trapped in a physical body by the evil God. And our salvation is to free ourselves from all of this uh, through uh, severity to the body, um, uh, fastings, and all manner of things. We'll talk about that. They believe their souls were in a cycle of reincarnation. Everyone's are moving from one body to another over multiple lifetimes um, and the the liberation or their version of salvation would be to return to the realm of the good God, to get to the spiritual and celestial plane, right? Um, heaven. And so they'll look at certain aspects of the New Testament that will support this, and uh, they'll focus a lot on the Gospels and heavily on the Gospel of John, um, something I'm currently preaching through, because the Gospel of John, if you want to interpret the concept of world is bad, is really easy to spin the gospel of John to be supporting this kind of theology where world bad, heaven good. And while you can spin it to mean that, the rest of scripture doesn't allow you that interpretation. It, it's, it's talking about the fallen aspects of the world are bad. Yes, not that the creation itself is bad, uh, obviously, um, you know, John chapter one wouldn't even hold to that at all. But regardless of such, this was their assumption. This was their belief about the world. Um, there's a lot of thoughts about where this came from and why it arose in, in uh, southeastern France at this point in history. The reality is, no matter how many theories there are out there, we can't fully trace it out. It makes it very, very difficult for us to actually lay out where this all came from. Um, and so you you really are left trying to uh, gauge it from uh, you know a, a, a place where we can't make full confect uh, or for full uh, confidence of of judging where it's at here 800 years later. It's just too difficult. Um, you would have uh, broadly speaking inside the the concept of the Cathars. Uh, you would have two main groups of people, and those would be what's called the perfects, and then those who would be um, just believers, uh, regular Christians type thing. And the, the the perfects were those who had undergone their only sacrament, right? So they didn't hold to baptism, they didn't hold to transubstantiation or communion or anything like that. Remember, those are all physical things. Physical water, bad. Food, bad. You're not going to have uh, uh, any of their sacraments are going to be involved in this. And so their sacrament uh, was called uh, uh, consolamentum. Uh, if you want to spell that out, uh, C-O-N-S-O-L-A-M-E-N-T-U-M. C-O-N-S-O-L-A-M-E-N-T-U-M, consolamentum. Um, it was kind of a spiritual baptism that was done through the laying on of hands. Um, and it is the only sacrament that the Cathars have. And when we, when we kind of look into how they live and what they're thinking about, uh, with regards to this, the idea is that at that point through the laying on of hands, you receive the Holy spirit. And so there would be a lot of them that will, uh, and at that point you are perfect in the state of, of, of spiritual, um, essence, salvation, if you will. And so a lot of them would actually save this until their deathbed, Right. And so when, um, and then there are others who would take it earlier on in their life and then intend to uh, not have just a, uh, just a normal life after that. They had a, that a certain uh, 
push towards living a far more uh, involved ascetic life. And so you will get very simplistic clothing. You will get um, extreme versions of fastings uh, where some would go every single week, three days of the week you don't eat. There were some who would take 40-day fasts. And there was others who, upon receiving their consolamentum, the only sacrament that they had, um, especially if it was on their deathbed, that the individual would undergo what they call endura, uh, which is a voluntary fasting until they die. Um, it's it, the whole point was to hurry along the release of the soul from the material body. Um, and, um, a lot of them would believe that this, uh, act of self-denial would again, ensure the soul's, um, passage to the spiritual realm. It wasn't, it wasn't a, um, a way to earn salvation. It was a way to live in concert with the spiritual realm here in the physical world, self-denial, asceticism, severity of the body, those types of things, um, massive uh, to how they think about this. Well, that gives you kind of a, a concept of things. Now, it, it's, it's a fascinating aspect to it. Um, the fact that we uh, know some about it means that um, people wrote about it after the fact. We don't have, um, we don't have, absolute uh, records from that exact time about them or from them. We do have ones about them, but written by their enemies, which makes it very difficult uh, to trust everything that's going on. Um, but it does seem to be consistent with what happened, and it does seem consistent across multiple um, uh, accounts, both those who really hate them and those who only mildly hate them. And so that's going to be that's going to be the the range of uh, of those that uh, record all of this, regardless of all of that. Um, that the whole concept of this is that inside Christendom in southeast France, you had uh, a whole growing population of people called Cathars that were following this. And so, if you know anything about kind of late medieval mm, Christendom. You know that that can't be, that can't be allowed. Uh, that would be just as foolish as a country allowing uh, an enemy force to set up, you know, uh, down the river from the capital. That doesn't make any sense either, right? And so it's going to have to be dealt with one way or another. Now, here's the thing: uh, politically, they're not any real threat. They don't really care about land. They don't really care about money. Um, and so their issue um, really had, they have no beef with uh, the kings of France or uh, the king of Aragon or anything like this at this point. You're not going to be dealing with uh, their political uprisings. They just kind of quietly live within Christendom. And so um, what had been attempted for the past hundred or so years, about 150 years, was uh, official attempts to reconvert them to Christianity, which is fascinating uh, to see uh, evangelistic techniques. And maybe someday we'll do a deep dive on that. Uh, evangelistic techniques towards the Cathars uh, in, um, in 12th century France. Uh, really interesting. Um, but I'll just kind of mention it in passing. And um, it didn't work. And it seemed like every single time that they tried to set up debates or every time they tried to set up uh, evangelistic techniques or or purposes or whatnot, uh, the problem would just get worse and worse. And here's the thing. Uh, Cathars, Cathars preached as well. They taught about this, um, you know, obviously with a physical uh, or a, a, a despising of physical world and material things, not only to the point of denying our physical appetites, you don't really procreate that much. Uh, they had very interesting views on, on sexual relations and on eating and all sorts of things that would prevent, let's just say, prevent a procreative um, way of evangelizing. How's that? Um, and so you, you get them, here's kind of this weird perfect storm that sets up. The local leaders and the cities have no issue with these people. The issue is purely theological. And 
the ones that are really going to have an issue with that aren't going to be the mayors of the city. It's not going to be the Viscounts or even the Counts. You're not going to have um, massive issues because here, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're not creating any uprising. They're not leading any revolts. They're not here to steal our money. They're not here to do anything, but just kind of exist, you know, in our cities. And so it's really fascinating because the attitude towards um, Cathars, the more local you get, the less problem anyone has with them. And so the real problems that people have really come from Rome. It comes from kings. It comes from way up top. But then everyone else really just does not care. In fact, they just kind of see them as kooky citizens of their cities. And so when uh, we have some conflict breakout, everyone gets very confused about how in the world all this is going to go down, right? Because, I mean, even the most strict adherence to this, you know, they're, they're just walking around in black robes, uh, renouncing worldly pleasures and desires. You don't really have any danger from them. They don't eat meat. They don't eat dairy. Um, you know, they don't eat eggs. Basically anything connected with procreation. Um, they don't engage in sexual activities. It, it's it's just as far as for local governance is concerned, these people are not a threat. And anyone who uh, is is going to be a, a good Christian French person is, is not going to follow them. So what difference does it make? The issues come in is that a lot of those who are followers of the Cathar religion are also preachers. And I don't mean preachers in that they had some organized church or something like that. Nope, they wouldn't do church buildings or anything like this. Remember, harsh break of all physical things. So this would be street corner preachers and the spreading of a, a an abounding force of ascetic living and, you know, this pushing on everyone towards the spiritual realm over and against the physical realm. Well, how does Rome get involved and where does Pope Innocent III come in on this? Well, Here's kind of the issue. This has been a simmering issue for decades at the time that Innocent III came to his papal office. Uh, even the Third Lateran Council of 1179 uh, addressed the issue and agreed with some of the local synod's uh, decisions about them. They need to be re-evangelized. They need to know the gospel. They need to know um, the, the authority of the church. Uh, they need to stop talking about how the um the uh can you ask a question do they pay their taxes ah uh, that's a really good question most of them okay so i would imagine that the believers would but the perfects wouldn't um because they don't have anything to pay taxes on uh so you, you here you got to understand how deeply ascetic we're talking here like they would own one robe maybe a stick or not and literally nothing else and literally at the point of becoming a perfect they would just renounce food and everything and just die it's really a bizarre way to look at life and so taxes for them i would imagine that as uh believers before the um before the consolamentum i would imagine they paid their taxes. I'm I'm guessing on that. That's not something I've ever read. Um, one because of our our, I don't know even know if that it's an answerable question because it's we would have to have conjecture, uh, because all of the sources that talk about the Cathars are just about their their um, religious enemies, and so, but I would imagine since they're not making enemies on the local level. If they had things to pay taxes on, they would have paid taxes on them. Um, and maybe that speaks to us about how little they actually had. But again, I think it would just be conjecture at this point. If anyone in the audience is well aware of an answer to that, please uh, send me an answer. I, I did not run across any such thing. Um, when Innocent III comes to his papal office, the year is 1198, right? The Third Lateran Council was 1179. So that was almost 20 years before he um, 
you know, came to papal office. Innocent the third, he is, you know, he's not that old. He's mid thirties when he becomes Pope. Uh, and one of the things that uh, he's going to take on is this threat of Catharism uh, and help reform the area. Uh, and to, to his credit in the early years, he attempted to continue to do that by sending uh, more papal legates, uh, more delegates out to teach, to preach against what's being taught and to try to convert. The problem is that in in the area of Toulouse, uh, in the areas um, of southeastern France, it, it was so entrenched. Uh, and and uh, Innocent III would actually talk about it almost like a, a sickness or a, um, a plague that, that just cannot be cured or solved. Um, and everyone was a little bit okay with going along with this plan of continuing to try to do what they have been doing for decades at this point, which is trying to teach this out of people. Um, that is until one of his papal legates was assassinated. That's kind of the straw that broke the camel's back on this one. Um, and this happened in the city of Toulouse. And uh, the guy who was in charge there was uh, uh, the Count of Toulouse was Raymond VI. And this happened in 1207, right? And Innocent III, and is, is, the thing is, nobody knows who actually killed the papal legate. Um, it's kind of lost to history. Um, but Innocent III certainly places the count of the entire city uh, to <coughs> to take the fall for this and actually issues him papal excommunication uh, in response to that. And here's one of the issues that comes up is that this begins a domino effect that leads to uh, what will be Innocent III's concept of a, of a solution uh, to the issue. Uh, a, a full solution, an attempt to um, pursue that. Um, this brings us to another character in the story, um, much younger, uh, someone named Raymond Roger de Trencavel. Raymond Roger, uh, exactly as you would spell it, uh, de Trencavel, uh, T-R-E-N-C-A-V-E-L, Trencavel. Guy's not that old. He's in his, uh, he's in his 20s. Uh, early 20s at that. And he actually finds himself uh, in the position of being the Viscount of three different towns that are very well known for the what, what the Catholic historians put it, the harboring of Cathars. What they would actually put it there in these cities was um, they're citizens of our cities. And so they live here and uh, we're just tolerant of them. And that was really one of the bigger issues uh, that they were very tolerant of the Cathars that lived in their cities and let them peacefully practice their religion. Obviously we're not going to, you know, put up with any, you know, any issues of uprisings or anything like that, but their experience with them on the local level is, I mean, they're just kind of weird people that, you know, dress in black robes and don't really bother us that much. They're just odd. And Raymond Roger de Trencavel, uh, he is the Viscount of three cities that are important, two of which we're going to zoom in on a little bit. Um, one is uh, Bézier, and the other is Carcassonne, and then Albi, obviously Albigensian. That's the same city that they get their name from. Um, Bézier is spelled B-E-Z-I-E-R-S, Bézier. Gotta love the French language, man. <laughs> B-E-Z-I-E-R-S, Carcassonne. Um, just spell carcass and then O-N-N-E. <laughs> there you go. Um, he and those cities are very tolerant of Cathars. They treat them as citizens. They treat them as neighbors. Um, and some of them, some of the things, here's the kind of the reality is because they're not, uh, procreating, they're not really, you know, doing much along those lines. Um, you know, you may have one in a family, Right. So you would have this whole family, and then one of one of them converts to uh, become a Cathar at some point in their life. And so you just th these aren't just like people who moved in; Th these are family members, these are friends, these are neighbors. They're just citizens of these cities, right? And uh, and Raymond Roger de Trencavel in these in these three cities specifically had uh, 
had issued tolerant orders towards anything like this. And so anyone who was a Cathar that was living outside those cities that wanted to make a home somewhere or to live somewhere, or to just exist somewhere, uh, waiting death and the freedom from these shackles of this mortal coil, uh, you know, then these would be the least, uh, the least problematic cities to live in. Let's put it that way. Well, in 1209, all of the attempts to, to continue to push forward, to, to preach against these things. Again, remember the, the, the assassination of the papal legate happened in 1207. By the time we get to 1209, uh, Innocent III has just given up on, on trying to convince anybody that, uh, that they need to abandon this heretical belief and they need to uh, come back in communion to Rome again. Um, and he's not really taking no for an answer with this one. Pope Innocent III in the year 1209 begins to preach a crusade, a new crusade. One that not a lot of people actually put the label on as a fifth crusade or anything like that. But I mean, the reality is that we've been through four crusades. You know, they were all focused on Jerusalem or uh, you know, they were they were focused on uh, the Holy Land in one way or another, or Egypt, or taking things through Egypt, or what the case may be. The Albigensian Crusade is very unique in the whole list of crusades because this this crusade is is uh, very distinct in the fact that it is dealing with something in Europe and directed against what was perceived as. Christian heretics, not non-Christians. Those are two different categories in Christendom. And so this idea of fighting against Muslims is one thing. To fight against those who are Christian heretics, like in out-and-out field battle, is very different. And it's the only time it happened uh, on, on this kind of a scale with this amount of intentionality. Um, Pope Innocent III preaches the crusade to deal with heretics inside France. And for the first time, again, crusading was used on those who resided inside friendly lands that considered themselves Christians. That's a new development. Yeah. Um, and so while there were several other crusades after this, it really did a lot to tamp down a lot of the crusading spirit. Um the Children's Crusade aside, um, which, again, not an official crusade. I mentioned that in passing, but happened in the same couple of years here. Um, so the Albigensian Crusade is is preached by Pope Innocent III in the year 1209. If you ever look this up in an encyclopedia or something like that, you will see the years 1209 to 1229, uh, putting forth the idea that this crusade was 20 years long. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of pull that back because while that is, while that is technically the length of this crusadishness, um, the reality is that as crusades are defined, uh, the Pope that orders them once he pulls the crusading indulgence, that pretty much ends the crusade. And anything that happens after that really is nothing more than a whole bunch of political uprising and and uh intrigue and wars and just you know old-fashioned battles um so i'm going to date the albigensian crusade a little bit differently than you'll see it listed out in an encyclopedia and i'll tell you why that is uh a little bit later here so the way i'm going to date it is from 1209 to 1213 okay uh and i'll explain why that is here in just a bit let's see how it starts Anytime you hear about the Albigensian Crusade, right? Um, if if you have been in school about it before, heard about it before, uh, most of the time that discussion is going to start with the city of Bézier. The city of Bézier and what happened there is a an extremely dark chapter in um, the visible church's history. I don't, you know, honestly, I, I can understand some people uh, try to argue for, you know, uh, crusades for the Holy Land or for Jerusalem or to hold back Muslim invaders and things like that. Okay, I understand church and state together and all this kind of stuff. 
this one was thoroughly inexcusable in my in my putting forth, which is why most people never even talk about it. Um, the Albigensian Crusade, at least nowhere near as much as the first four, the Albigensian Crusade begins largely at the Siege of Bézier. Uh, this is July of 1209. And for some reason, the citizens of that city wanted to defend their city. I know, crazy to think of, right? The citizens of Bézier wanted to defend their city, and so it lends, it leads to a siege of the city. But the reality is that this kind of stuff's never happened, where you have crusaders that are attacking things in country like this. And so there was not really an understanding that they were there to destroy them more than they were there kind of to capture the Cathars and maybe bring them somewhere else and re-educate them or something like this. And so for reasons that, um, you know, if it was just a flat-out battle, make no sense. Uh, there was a number of those who lived in Bézier who went out to meet the overwhelming crusading force that was at their gates. And leaving and opening the gate to go out to meet them, the crusading force flowed into the city. Now, here's the thing to wrap your head around. Inside the city of Bézier, there's only about 700 Cathars based on even the numbers at the time uh, that were um, probably inflated numbers at that. Um, it's kind of hard to count the number of it, but um, the citizens were prepared, prepared to defend their city and they were prepared to defend the Cathars that lived in their cities because they were citizens with us. They belong here. Uh, even the local bishop in the middle of the siege tried to convince the citizens of the city to turn the heretics over to them, but the citizens weren't having it. And rather um, rather than staying inside the city, they actually mounted up several that went out to meet the crusaders out at the gates. What follows towards the end of that month was it happened on July 22nd, 1209. The Massacre of Bézier. This is the first uh, full-on action of the Albigensian Crusade. Whatever the exact cause is lost to history. We don't fully know. Whether what happened next was designed as an intimidation tactic to dissuade other you know, cities from harboring heretics, probably likely, or maybe it was just the lower-level parts of the army taking liberties uh, that they had no orders to do. Um, I would say probably not likely, especially for those who are there uh, for purchasing salvation uh, through crusading work. Uh, that's usually not likely that you just do things without orders. What is clear is that while there were only about 700 Cathars in the entire city, some 10 to 20,000 people were put to death. Uh, it, it was such a overwhelming thing that happened in Bézier uh, that some people don't even refer to it as uh, anything other than a massacre and a, a full-on genocide. What happened in Bézier was had absolutely nothing to do with trying to staunch out a, a heretical sect. Um, whatever it was that was intended... The effect of it was absolute terror across the French countryside of anyone that had any Cathars in their cities. And if you look at that and you go like, how, how does somebody even wrap their head around this idea of putting to death in, in a lot of cases, fellow countrymen, you didn't have just, you know, Italians, uh, you know, coming from Rome and invading France. You had Northern Frenchmen coming down uh, to South France, you had Spanish, you had um, uh, you had all sorts of people gathering into this, uh, and so you, you try to wrap your head around, you know, how do you, how do they think about this? What what is the average person, or even what are the generals at the time thinking about this? Um, with regards to you know, even by their own estimates, you're dealing with less than a thousand Cathars in the entire city, and you are here not just randomly and accidentally stabbing or people die with, 
you know, when they get hit by catapults and stuff. No, no, no. Uh, actual burnings at the stake of all sorts of people running through with spears, chopping off of heads in the more than 10,000 range. It's an insane thing to do. And so one of the one of the things that were written, uh, it was later reported, um, and how true this is, we really can't know. But the papal legate that was there overseeing this um, and ensuring that it was going to be carried out in accordance with the uh, the way the crusade was going to come, the actual representative of, of, of uh, Pope Innocent III, um, according to this account, was asked how to distinguish the Cathars from the faithful in the city. And it is reported that his answer was, kill them all and God will know his own. Now, whether he actually said that or not, um, the fact that that is the report from the time kind of tells us what non-Cathars about 100 years later thought about the invasion of Bézier. And so whether or not that actually happened, that is the effect of memory in the medieval world. And the response from the other cities is just absolutely stunned. No, nobody had expected a church response like this. This stuff was reserved for um, just wars, for instance. This this stuff was reserved for, um, you know, freeing the Holy Land from uh, from those who do not fear God. The, the, what's going on in Bézier has absolutely nothing to do with anything in Christian theology ever. It is just an absolute use of power because it can be done. Now, does it intersect with theology? Yeah, it does. The fear of heretics was real at this point, and it was significant. And in their worldview, it is better to kill a heretic and to burn all his bones so no relics of him exist, and so none of, none of his error can bring people to hell with him. But the fact that we're going through and knowing that 90% plus of the people that we're killing and sometimes upwards of 95 to 96% of everyone we're killing are not having anything to do with any of this. Well, that's just the first city. The Viscount of Bézier was in Carcassonne, the other uh, city that would belong to him. Uh, he was in Carcassonne at the time, and they didn't know what in the world to think about with this. They received reports of what happened in Bézier. Uh, Raymond Roger de Trencavel ordered the closing of Carcassonne as the crusading army set their eyes on that city next. After a two-week siege, this would be in August of the same year, with water running low, Again, they weren't planning on sieges. They weren't planning on dealing with the world like this. Uh, this was not, I mean, there were no real enemies. Uh, Aragon was to the south. We lived in France. We're, we're not planning for long-term sieges here. But he was able to negotiate a surrender um, of the city in order to prevent another massacre like Bézier. Um he, as the Viscount of both cities, was promised safe conduct, but was taken prisoner almost immediately and put in his own dungeon. And he died there a few months later under suspicious circumstances. Um, and in some ways, that placed an even larger black mark on the reputation of the church's actions and on the crusade's actions, because the violation of the terms of surrender is not something even the barbarian kings do. Even in sieges. You don't, when, when somebody surrenders, that's it. The, the problem can be solved after that. There's, there's no, there's nothing to be gained from putting them to death. Now we know that on the political side of things, it's why we take prisoners when they surrender and we don't just shoot them. The same thing was happening here, but the church was coming through and they were just destroying. Now you can argue, well, it wasn't the church. It was the ones that was, it doesn't matter. They're there under the orders and under the direction of the church. What matters is the perception. What matters is the effects. It's, it, it's, not, it's not a time for semantics when you're talking about thousands upon tens of thousands of people being killed. You know, sitting around going, who said what and who did what? 
you got to talk about how something so overwhelming has just happened inside Christendom. Again, this is not on the front line of some war somewhere. These are peaceful cities that have not seen war in quite a few decades. There was a man named Simon of Montfort, which is spelled exactly as it sounds. I mean, I'm not going to try to pronounce the French version of that name. Um, he was early 40s. Um, he had abandoned the Fourth Crusade when it um, started pursuing erroneous ends. He was perceived as a very righteous local ruler uh, outside of some of these cities. Um, he was brought in to help put everything to order again. A lot of stuff was handed over to him. Uh, and he continued on the crusade, a lot of different battles, a lot of different cities. Um, and I bring him up only because he started dealing with some of the significant issues that caused the kind of pittering away of the crusading spirit here. And that is that Pope Innocent III, when he had preached this crusade, he expressed that one spiritual benefit would be bestowed on them after only 40 days service. So imagine how much harder it is to, you know, keep armies around for a couple of years when after 40 days they've gained all the spiritual benefit that uh, they're ever going to gain from that, meaning eternal salvation. They've already gotten it. And so why stick around? Uh, now I can go enjoy my life and not worry about this at all. Uh, a lot of his armies just started leaving. Uh, having received their salvation again, again, you know, kind of tough times for being Simon Montfort. Um, and to make matters worse, the king of Aragon, uh, basically half of Spain to the south of them, Pedro II, wrote in twelve uh, in 1212 to Pope Innocent III that Simon was no longer taking over cities in search of heretics, but instead he's killing the faithful and taking on, uh, and that the crusade is taking on a life of its own. And this is one of the things that leads me to actually say that the crusade itself actually did end in 1213 because um, Pope Innocent III writes to Simon of, of Montfort, who's really kind of heading up the uh, the political side of this and the battle side of this, and instructs him to cease and to listen to what King Pedro II has to say to him. Uh, he also writes to his legates in 1213 and actually verbatim states uh, well, not verbatim, paraphrase, that the mission of the Albigensian crusade was finished, completed. Uh, the matter is settled. What we're going to do from here on out is to actually um, not to have out-and-out -out battles in a crusade format, but we will put together something new uh, that puts heretics on trial. We give them a fair hearing, and uh, if they are deemed not to be uh, faithful Christian, if they are indeed deemed to be heretics, we'll put them to death there. And here we see the birth of the Inquisition. Um, and that's actually exactly where it came from. And with, with all of this, we have, oh, by the way, Innocent III was also planning a new crusade to the Holy Land. So, you know, you gotta, you, know, you don't want to be your own competitor for recruitment there. Um, the legates disagreed. Now, here's the crazy thing, right? And this is why people argue over uh, when this crusade actually stopped is because the papal delegates disagreed that the mission was settled. They disagreed with the Pope that the crusade was over and they wrote appealing back to Innocent III, uh, not wanting to turn over any of the land they've been taken. Uh, and the King of Aragon also wrote to Innocent III, like, Everyone is trying to figure out what's going on, and everything starts getting tied up in bureaucratic court stuff. Well, that just takes too long. And no, no war is going to wait for courts to figure stuff out. It doesn't work like that. And so September of 1213, we find um, really the most significant aspect of the early parts of this crusade, if you date it with the 20-year length, or you find pretty much the last hurrah of the crusade at the Battle of Muret. Uh, that is M-U-R-E-T. Gotta love French. September of 1213, the Battle of Muret. Simon had somewhere around 900 cavalry, a few hundred men. King Pedro II had about 2,000 cavalry, uh, upwards of 4,000 men. 
you know, two to 4,000 men. It's really hard to get accurate numbers for this time period. In short, Simon is way outclassed by the king of uh, Aragon. Obviously, he's the king of half of Spain. Simon is a local guy. Um, but Simon launched a surprise attack directly towards the king, even sending uh, many cavalry around to the flank of his army, distracting most of his army and making a beeline straight for the king of Aragon. And it worked. The king was killed and much of the remaining army of, of, of his was disbanded or abandoned him. Um, and Simon's power in the southeast of France this time in these areas became almost unstoppable. Um, and but here's the thing: in order to uh, in order to actually have a legitimate reign in this area, uh, he needed papal recognition. And there's if Pope Innocent III at this point doesn't really have a uh, a full on uh, way of solving all of these things, and so he actually refers their uh, his request to the Fourth Lateran Council uh, that was meeting in about eighteen months in twelve fifteen. Um, and the answer that comes back from that is recognition of his reign um and what came from this is not the wiping out of the cathars that happens in another generation or so um what comes from a lot of this is that the political things that happened the massacres that happened the murders that happened the persecution of the cathars that happened uh began a way of interacting uh not began but uh, brought kind of to a culmination, a way of dealing with heretics that is going to change substantively uh, going forward. You're never going to see a crusade used against heretics again. Now you're going to have um, specific papal courts called the Inquisition that are meant to try heretics and they had broad sweeping authorities to, uh, to put them to death for the protection of Christianity in their mind. It's hard to kind of wrap your mind around uh, how this kind of stuff happens. Um, and one of the taglines that I put to this is, um, you know, today we learn how not to deal with heretics. The reality is um, in, in, the, in the medieval mystical concept that is the Catholic religion, especially in the 13th century and certainly still today, um, you Physical things, especially people, have spiritual effect on things. And we have to wrap our minds around this because if we look at this from the outside perspective, we just go, well, this just looks like, you know, big dog squashing small dog. You know, this just looks like an abuse of power and nothing but. Yes, there is that, but it's not that and nothing but. Uh, there is an actual understanding and a way of thinking about heresy and, and those who had openly, having been warned about it, still teach it, is that that kind of thing can actually bring plagues into this world. That kind of thing can actually bring pestilence. That kind of stuff can actually bring crippling weather, uh, failures of crops, locusts, like the the expectation that right preaching or wrong preaching can actually change things like the weather and whether people make it that next winter, right? And so with that kind of a concept, you can see we've been working to try to convince these people who are teaching things, not only that we'll send other people to hell, but we'll actually make a hell of our current existence and threaten the political order, okay? That is the concept at the time, and almost everybody held to that, uh, to that understanding from 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 King all the way down. And so, it's it's hard to wrap our minds around it because we don't live really in a society that thinks that way at all. Uh, but the reality is, they thought like this, and they would look at this and say that that presents a danger not only to church and to soul but a danger to state and it's why you'll get things like the king of france gets involved um you obviously the king of aragon was involved uh and you'll get the pope involved all of this over some some few thousands of and, and maybe tens of thousands of cathars living in southeastern france that really aren't even engaging in the economic world 
um, uh, don't have established churches. It's not like they were trying to set up, you know, a big cathedral right next to uh, the main cathedral inside um, tours or something like this. No, it's. But the danger of heresy was seen as something that can actually destroy not only soul, but body and city and political order and church and future. All of it is wrapped up together. And so the way that we look at this, the way that we deal with this, really comes down to how we see the significance of these things. Obviously, if we are looking at this, and it's easy to make a punching bag out of uh, the Crusades. It really is, especially if you don't know anything about the Crusades. Um, you know, and people do it all the time. And now I will tell you, I, I don't agree with the Crusades. I don't think they were a good thing, not in any of the situations. But I can understand where in that culture and at that time, there was few options in the early days. And then there was more options in the later days. And this was a bad option that was taken. Let's put it that way. Um, and and how how to deal with things like that, it's really easy to make a call, you know, kind of as an armchair quarterback, you know, 800, 900 years after the fact and thinking you got it all figured out. Uh, I don't think it's that easy. I don't think it was that easy then. I don't think it's really that easy now. Um, and the resistance that the Cathars had to any other attempt to convert them or to, to debate them in open forum or anything else was really hard for a medieval church to try to view. And it, all it took was kind of this perfect storm of uh, crazy beliefs in France. And then you have the most powerful, uh, you know, almost military minded Pope in history, the Pope Innocent III, also the most ironically named Pope of all time. And uh, you have this kind of swirling mass of medieval uh, way of thinking on top of all of that. And then to have the Cathars come in and bring not only Gnosticism back into the foray, but then you have them challenging the central sacraments of the medieval church. There's nothing, there's nothing more insulting uh, to the medieval church than to say, look, we think your baptism is satanic. We think your transubstantiation is satanic. We think your cathedrals are satanic. All your wealth is satanic. The Pope is satanic. I mean, there's only so many things you can say before the dam's going to burst. You know? And that's not to make excuses. It really isn't. It's just to say, I don't know another way this is going to end. And when you look at something like the Cathar uh, belief, which, by the way, before the 1300s was completely and utterly done away with, um, you see a warning on both sides. And I think a lot of people in the modern era, not I think, I know, a lot of people in the modern era just want to look at this time period and go, boom, here is the problem. The problem is 100% Pope Innocent III. Um, I don't believe that. I, the, the problems were in the kings, the problems were in the local leaders, the problems were in the crusaders, the whole concept of crusading, and the problem was in the Cathars as well, right? This is not Christianity. And what they're teaching is truly leading people to their doom, right? God and Satan are not equal powers, and the physical world is not bad, and to reject literally 75, 80% of scripture that God wrote is not a Christian attitude. Right. It's it's in fact, it's the exact thing that Paul wrote against in Colossians chapter two, uh, thinking that asceticism and severity of the body is is going to accomplish something in Christianity. It's not asceticism and severity of the body. Even even Paul describes specifically it has the appearance of wisdom, but is a man-made religion and is of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Right. We can tell ourselves these things. And I think this is a good lesson for us. How do we deal with heresy? both outside of us, warning Innocent III, and inside of us, Cathars. How do we deal with wrong beliefs? Do we seek to destroy somebody else because they don't agree with us? And this I'm actually going to make full-on application at Church History tonight. Uh, who knows? Have you ever heard a, a, a tiny little sermonette, <laughs> an application of the Cathars and the Albigensian Crusade? I doubt it. 
But think about the way that both of these sides of this conflict dealt with heresies. One of them ignored the heresies they have in their own selves, and the other one sought to destroy those that saw heresies in others. I don't see humility in any of them. Right? I mean, if you set your mind on the destruction of somebody who, simply because they believe differently than you, you might want to think long and hard about that. And and Christian, if you are carrying on with practices that are uh, abjectly different than that of what is described in the scriptures, or if you're taking on beliefs about God that did not come from God, but instead just came from somebody that taught you it and isn't normalized by the teaching of scripture, and by the teaching of scripture, I don't mean just somebody's interpretation, I mean just usually just the plain sense, right? How many people have been taken in by thinking that if they deny their body this or if they deny their body that, God will be happy and it will fix my spiritual demise. But Paul just speaks on it very clearly. How many people were brought into the idea that that circumcision saves them? He just speaks of it very plainly in the book of Galatians, right? I mean, most of these things, that there really isn't a new way to create heresies, right? Gnosticism keeps coming back up throughout history, especially in our culture as well in America. This idea that, um, you know, the body doesn't matter. Uh, the body can just be evil. It can be wrong. It can be, but, but spiritually what I am on the astral plane, uh, that's a good thing. The entire transgender movement is built out of this concept. Um, everything about this has happened before. And, how do we deal with that? Do we listen to what God says about it? Or do we listen to ourselves? Do we listen to those that we're familiar with? It really does say a lot about ourselves and what we're actually capable of. Um, and I think this is one of the things that I always appreciate about looking at uh, church history is realizing that even in times like this, I, I think it behooves us to understand that if we lived in those days, we would do the exact same things that were going on. Right, History would not have been much better if I lived there. History is just a testament to who we are as fallen humans. Some of us Christians, some of us not. Some of us thinking we are Christians and aren't. It's a, it's a, it's a good testament and a good reminder. How do we deal with heresies? Well, this is not the way. And I will say this a hundred different ways. If the church was to be gifted the sword to be used, we would have parameters on it somewhere. But every time the church picks up the sword, it does not look well for us. It does not work out well for us. It always ends in failure every single time. And I know I'm not even going to open into the can of worms that's going on discussions on Twitter these days of um, all that kind of stuff. But <clears throat> only to say, when the church does what the church should do, things will be much better for her. The government has the sword, the church does not. And if there's anything that I can say at the end of a, a lesson like this, it would be that. Um, with that, I have I don't see any other questions coming up to this. I am going to end it there. Um, I hope these are of help to you. Uh, I'm looking for different ways to uh, to wrap them into a, a, a conglomerate of theology and history and, and something that's meaningful to the Christian life and walk. Always open to suggestions. Um, but I will say I thank you for those of you who are tuning in. Thank you for those who are listening on the podcast. Um, just by if anyone's curious, we have a, a truly astounding number of people that listen now weekly. It's kind of bizarre to me. Um, I just want to say thank you to all of you. Um, in whatever language you are listening to this in, I've actually been contacted by a couple of people to translate this into other languages. So, um, by the way, you're welcome to do that. Anyone, um, just give credit to where it's due. Um, Lord's blessings to you all. Um, and, uh, I will see you here next week with another deep dive in church history.